Hello, and welcome to The Framing Effect. I am your host, Jerry Zhang. This show seeks to be the incredible implications of behavioral economics and business through undiscovered lenses. The Framing Effect in the context of behavioral economics is a term describing the fluidity of information. By framing the how, when, and where information is communicated, we will see how seemingly unrelated events and people are all connected by the overarching forces of different industries. Join me in conversations with experts in fields not traditionally business-affiliated to find out how the decisions of individuals may affect the world. On this special eighth episode of The Framing Effect, we welcome back Dr. Edward Marshall to discuss the history of leadership development and answer some audience-provided questions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the eighth episode of The Framing Effect. Today, we welcome back Professor Edward Marshall, the founder and managing partner of the Marshall Group and adjunct professor of management and leadership at Duke University. Now, Professor Marshall, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's really good to see you again, Gianni. Yeah, it's been a long time since we talked and there's going to be a lot of valuable information again this episode. This episode is a slight departure from our regular episodes. For the first half, we will talk about some key topics in Professor Marshall's book, Leadership's Fourth Evolution, including the four paradigms of leadership. And then in the second half, we have several user submissions detailing their experiences with management, and Professor Marshall will provide his experience and advice on how to overcome these uh, different scenarios. Now, could we start with you detailing your experience with the history of leadership and the four paradigms? Absolutely. I was thinking, you know, as we go through these four different approaches to management, which, you know, kind of are a review of the last 110 years um, of leadership theory, and we're going to do it in about 10 minutes. (laughs) But as we go through this, um, if those of you who are watching this could just think about your own organization um, and the leadership in that organization, as well as its culture, and see if you can identify attributes or characteristics that apply to your situation. And then I'm going to ask you a question to be thinking about at the end about what all this means to you for your future career. Um, but to as we begin to think about leadership cultures, let me just say a word about that. Every organization has a leadership culture. That's how things get done um, around your organization, what it values. Um, and if um, the what I have learned in four decades of work, uh, both coaching uh, and consulting, is that if you get the culture right, the rest of the business will work. Lots of times business leaders are focusing on bottom line results or they're focused on quality or they're focused on continuous improvement. And what I have tried to do is to let to work with them to see that what is truly important is the people, Uh, that people are what makes the world go round, even in the days of chat, GPT and AI. Um, But uh, culture really does start at the top of the organization with their values and beliefs and it emanates throughout the the company. Um, 
And so there are four types of leadership cultures, which I'm going to review here briefly. Um, and I'd like you to be thinking about, it's like, a, you know, a, a culture is like, and a culture shift, is like going from analog to digital. Um, that they're just, that there are, there are uh, different ways of looking at an organization and a paradigm is a way of capturing that. It's a, a, a way of thinking about it. Uh, and uh, uh, what's, what's happened over the last hundred years is, th is that those paradigms have begun to shift to where the Gen Z and millennial generations are demanding uh, much more collaboration. And I can tell you that I, I'm hearing about this with some of my coaching clients now um, at Delta Airlines and other companies that the younger generation, your generation, is uh, really insisting on a on a different approach to leadership, um, and it's perplexing to the older generation of managers. But here's why. Uh, so let's take a look at these four. There, there are four uh, four paradigms: power, people, principle, and collaboration. And the power paradigm, um, which was kind of 1910 to present, because it's still still here. Uh, the primary author uh, behind this was Frederick Winslow Taylor, and he wrote a very influential book at the time called Scientific Management, which really articulated what theory, what we now call Theory X. Basically, the, the beliefs in this system were that uh, people are inherently lazy. Uh, they prefer to be led. They don't care about the organization. Um, and that they're motivated only by money, uh, but they 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 can, should be punished if they don't do what they're supposed to do. Uh, it's fairly Byzantine when you compare it to a more collaborative approach, as we'll discuss. But that's really what was going on back in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, at least in the U.S. Um, it values power and control. It's a fear-based culture. Uh, which still exists today. Most companies are still driven by fear of losing one's job, especially if you speak up. The structure is top-down, it's pyramidal, it's uh, siloed. Um, there, the bosses are kept separate in this uh, in the power paradigm from the rest of the workforce. They are all powerful and all knowing. Um, and as a result, what happened uh, with this very rigid system uh, was that uh, the workers revolted and started, that's what the start of the union movement. Uh, and uh, it became violent at times, uh, but union rights became uh, embodied uh, really during the Roosevelt administration in the early 40s. Um, and uh, so, uh, this whole notion of collective bargaining was in reaction to uh, this very, you know, very tight, very clamped down approach to, to leadership. Um, there were also some experiments that were done um, at Western Electric um, that really helped um, uh, another uh, theorist, uh, Doug McGregor, Douglas McGregor, who is the primary author of the people paradigm. Um, and he wrote his book, uh, his book is called The Human Side of Enterprise. It's a seminal work in terms of shifting our way of thinking uh, because of all the anomalies, the breakdowns in the, in the power paradigm. 
Um, and these experiments actually were were uh, central to to uh, McGregor's theory. They put people in a room uh, that uh, they turned down the lights to see what would happen to productivity. Productivity went up. Then they turned the lights back on and turned up the heat. Productivity kept going up. And they were perplexed. They didn't understand why. And that's where McGregor has helped us understand that what, what was really going on was they were being paid attention to. They were working together as a team. Uh, it was more social and interactive. Uh, and that that's what people really wanted in the in the workplace was to be acknowledged, to be appreciated, to be paid attention to, um, and to uh, be working uh, in more of a team-based environment. So that's really what uh, McGregor talks about. And what he learned is that people want to work. It's not that they don't want to work, that they perform better in groups, that they're motivated by a whole lot more than just money. Uh, they're motivated by social interaction. And so the structure that he suggested was team-based, uh, but still within a hierarchy. Uh, it was more informal alignment. There was alignment on the mission, a lot of listening. Uh, disagreements were actually resolved rather than swept under the rug. Decisions uh, were made by some kind of a consensus, not, not my definition of it, but some kind of it. And it was the first mention I could find in the literature on uh, the use of the term consensus. Um, but I think this is, uh, most of my work was built, uh, I started really with, with um, the work of Doug, Doug McGregor. Um, the principal paradigm really came to pass around 1990 and is still present. It's these primary authors. Stephen Covey with the uh, book Principle Centered Leadership. Um, he's also uh, uh, known for other, other books, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But his beliefs were very similar to Douglas McGregor's and he val the values that he was promoting were trustworthiness, integrity, uh, being people-centric and the inside out evolution of the leader. And that leadership starts in here, uh, not out there. It's, it's not the result of training. It's really about the result of self-discovery. Um, and I found that to be, that's really when my work began in earnest. Um, uh, and I, I found it to be very powerful. Um, and I experienced some of uh, uh, Covey's uh, programs that were helpful for me and helpful for my clients. Uh, around 2000, actually, my work started in, 90, in 1990 uh, with Ed DuPont in IT uh, and really became formulated. In, my first book was in 95 on the power of the collaborative workplace, uh, transforming the way we work. And then around 2000, my second book came out on building trust at the speed of change because change was speeding up. Uh, people were really trying to understand it, and uh, they were trying to understand how could we cope with that change uh, in a way that would uh, continue to help our companies be productive. So uh, my my work uh, really stands, as I said, on the shoulders of McGregor and Covey um, and many others in the kind of the humanist uh, humanistic school of thought. 
Um, and, uh, you know, John, you've already talked about the title of my book. Um, uh, the link for this book, you can get a Cognell Academic Publishing fairly inexpensively, especially if it's digital. Um, but the beliefs in the collaboration paradigm are that uh, it's all centered around the value and principle of trust, that people want to be trusted, they want to be respected, they want to be honored, they want to be appreciated and held even held accountable. Um, they want to be safe, psychologically safe in their jobs, and that means that you can speak truth to power without fear of retribution. When I worked with... Um, uh, one company, um, they, they, I was speaking to the global HR person, one of the, I was working on this retreat and they, um, they told me about the story of their going into the CEO's office and telling the CEO exactly what they thought was going on and, and did it openly and, uh, professionally, uh, and there were no repercussions. You can't do that in most companies today. There are always repercussions, uh, either formal or you know uh, informal. You get known as a troublemaker if you start asking questions. Anyway, uh, that's what uh, psychological safety is. And I've actually learned uh, that there is, um, I'm gonna give you kind of a, a secret to success around collaboration. It's a formula that if you can create a psychologically safe culture where people own their jobs and they own the change process and they own the vision and mission of the organization, the result will be trust. So psychological safety plus ownership equals trust. Trust in this sense is an output. Uh, it's not something that you can do. Just saying that I trust you does not mean that I trust you. Um, the structure in a collaborative organization is flat. It's team-based. Uh, leadership is facilitative, uh, serving the workforce. The workforce owns the jobs and change processes, and they have a seat at the table with management on certain projects. And this is going to, you know, you'll see as we get into some of the scenarios how this plays itself out. Um, the result of this, and I've been able to prove this in my own consulting work, when a when you shift from a power-based culture uh, to a people-based or to a to a collaborative culture, um, uh, productive energy, meaning how much of myself I am willing to give to the company, um, uh, what risks I'm willing to take. Will I work the extra hours? Uh, will I give more of my creative energies to the company? The productive, and I've been able to show that it can, it'll double and it can double in a relatively short time at DuPont IT down in the Gulf Coast of Texas. Uh, we went from 30% to 70%. Um, at Microsoft, we went to from about 40% to 75%. Uh, and so on. Um, so it's really, really powerful work when people have a high degree of trust. So what does all this mean for you? Um, I think there's about 95% of, I would estimate 95% of companies today are still using some form of the, mod, it's a modified power paradigm is what I would suggest it is. It's still top-down, still hierarchical, still power and fear-based. But there are teams, 
and there's training, there's a human resource function, there is some uh, sense of appreciation of the importance of, 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 the, uh, of people. Um, often they are in a hub and spoke kind of relationship. In other words, the leader is at the center of the organization and all the functional uh, responsibilities that may still be siloed. Uh, but most companies uh, will have a dominant culture, but they may have subcultures. And so it's not like one size fits all. I always worked in a, in dominant power paradigms, but we developed um, uh, collaborative cultures inside various units within the business. Um, so here's some questions that you might want to ask yourself um, before we uh, before we get into the management situations that you all submitted, uh, how do decisions get made in my organization? Is it one person? Is a majority rule? Is it can live with consensus? Is it one hundred percent true consensus? How does how decisions get made has everything to do with the level of ownership? How does work get done? Uh, is it done in teams? Is it done is it in departments? Is it siloed? Is it working cross-functionally? Um, do you feel psychologically safe? Um, which I've already talked about. What do you own? Do you own your job? Do you own the vision, the mission? Do you own a task? Do you own a change process? Are you part of that decision-making uh, effort? Are you respected? And are our differences respected? We have a very diverse workforce now and how are conflicts handled? So these are just some, some, some kind of indicative questions that will help you decide which of those four, four paradigms or parts of those paradigms that you're actually living in. Um, and I've discussed all of this in my book, um, Leadership's Fourth Evolution, Collaboration for the 21st Century. So let's, uh, I, I think now, Gianni, I'm, I'm done. Unless you have any questions, we can move on to the management scenarios. First of all, for everyone listening, to submit any uh, responses to Professor Marshall's questions, please type your inquiries at theframingeffectpc at gmail.com uh, to be featured in a future episode. And also, I have one note specifically about when you were talking about how the speed of change is increasing within different corporate cultures. Uh, last week, I had a conversation with perhaps your colleague, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Glass, and he mentioned, we were talk talking about how AI was increasing uh, change at a speed never before seen. And he made the note that speed has always been quick. It's just now that the technology is able to feel the human, uh, uh, the human want to change. So maybe, how do you feel about that kind of situation where we want to change as people, but now the technology is actually giving us a platform to be able to conduct that change? There is a lot of controversy around AI, as you are perfectly aware. Um, coming from the school of thought that I come from, the preeminence of the human factor uh, needs to remain preeminent. Uh, and my deepest concern around, I have a, quite a number of concerns around AI, 
as it is being put forth. And I think ChatGPT in particular has raised questions about ethics and integrity, um, certainly in the academic sphere. Uh, but there are, you know, when one of the founders, a couple of the founders of AI are concerned that it may destroy humanity, um, I think we need to stop and, and, and listen. Uh, we need to really think about this and have an ethical framework uh, where we are putting human ethics and human impacts above the technology and making sure there are sufficient and adequate controls um, over that technology. And I'm afraid that it's already run away from us uh, and that it's going to be uh, outside of our control. Um, and there, you know, it's it's like when uh, my father worked on the atom bomb um, as a uh, as an engineer, and one of the things I learned growing up was that there are two sides to every major technological shift, um, just like there was with the computer or the internet. Um, and that is the you know the positive side was that we could get nuclear energy. It was carbon free. Um, downside was we had nuclear waste, but we could also blow up the world multiple times. Um, mm. And I always lived under the threat of that. Now, the Cold War and B-52 bombers going over my school and all that kind of stuff. And so there's there we have to really evaluate the unintended consequences. Um of uh, artificial intelligence and create a, a human-centric framework and an ethical framework for how we use it. Completely agree. It's very, uh, so there's so many nuances that we don't understand about the field and it's going to be very interesting in the next couple of years to find out more about it. Now, moving on to the user submissions for management scenarios. First, we start with Stephen M. So Stephen is a manager at a retail company experiencing a consistent decline in sales over the past few quarters. Customers have also experienced dissatisfaction with the product quality and customer service. The management team is struggling to identify the root causes and develop a plan to turn the situation around. Uh, Dr. Marshall, how would you address the situation? You know, it's it's these four situations are wonderful, Johnny. They bring have brought me back to my consulting career, um, which I did for most of my career. Uh, so thank you, Stephen, for uh, for this uh, scenario. I'd say um, if I were the consultant to this organization, I'd say it's all about engagement and ownership and creating a culture of customer first and high quality. Um, so that would be kind of at the strategic level. Um, it's not, I don't think about tightening the screws or reforming uh, a process. It's really about a fundamental shift in the workforce's ownership of the customer and the quality of the product. Um, I'm thinking of a company where there was a very traditional power paradigm man, uh, leader um, that uh, realized that his company could not grow if he did not shift the way in which he was leading and managing. 
this is Johnsonville, the Johnsonville sausage case. It's written up in Harvard Business Review. And in my classes, I've always used it as an example of this, this ownership, particularly as it relates to the quality issue. Because what he did was give the workforce specific control and ownership over customer complaints and solving those customer complaints. Rather than him or his managers, you know, going out and trying to solve all these customer problems, the product quality issues were funneled right to the, <laughs> the workforce that was responsible for that problem and they had to deal with it. Um, so I think that that is a, is, a, is a mindset shift. It's also a cultural shift and a behavioral shift inside of the organization. Um, but to do that, it takes a leader who understands uh, that this is a culture shift, that culture is important, and that um, rather than kind of changing on the margins, margins, I would also engage the customers. I'd, I'd, I'd send out workforce teams responsible for that product that were dealing with a particular customer, going to a particular customer, and have them interact with the customers. Uh, to find out, you know, what specifically what their concerns are. Um, I'd then take all of that information and engage the entire workforce around helping them understand the concerns of their customers. Uh, then I think the next step would be to form tiger teams that would focus on the central issues that came up during the discovery. Um, and then they would recommend specific changes and an implementation schedule. Uh, I think at that point, senior leadership needs to then say, okay, you guys go do it. It, empower, it would empower them, charter them to go solve these particular issues. And I think at the end of the day, that begins the process of a culture shift that would then have to be nurtured uh, over time. Do you think a perhaps a remarketing campaign would be a helpful uh, path to go down for this case? if the product quality and customer service are the kind of the focal point of what they're trying to solve? No, I think you've got to get to the root of the, the fundamental issue. What's really be, why is there uh, a poor quality? Um, I once had a, had a client who had a, an entire team that was focused on returns. And we got rid of that because basically what was happening was that the return team became the central focus of the company. Um, you got to get to the root cause as to why you're having returns, <laughs> which we did. Uh, and that team was then uh, disbanded um, and their quality went from, their quality rating went up from 85% to 98%. Uh, you're always going to have quality issues, but you've got to really try to understand what the root cause is. So there are technical reasons why there are problems, but there are human reasons as to why there are problems, uh, which is at least from my perspective, if you get the, the, the culture right and the people have ownership of the quality issue, they're going to take care of it. Marketing to me would be what I was talking about you know, reforming a process. You're trying to push more business uh, or kind of change people's perceptions. And when everybody still knows that the problem is still there. It's like solving a symptom rather than the illness. 
Yeah, it's a putting a Band-Aid on, on a problem that's still bleeding. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Stephen, for that uh, wonderful scenario you provided. And next, we'll move on to Tony L. Tony is an executive at a well-established company that experienced a sudden departure of its CEO and other top executives, creating a leadership vacuum. The management team must quickly identify interim leadership assess internal and external succession options, and develop a plan to ensure continuity and stability during the transition. How would you address this situation? Well, let's go back to our four paradigms. Um, I think the key here is to for senior leadership to agree um, on what type of leadership culture they now want to create in the company. This is an extraordinary opportunity when you have that kind of level of departure. Um, but um, they've got they've got four things to choose from. Um, once they have an agreement on the type of culture that they want for the workforce that they have, uh, then they would identify the attributes and characteristics based on that paradigm. And I have a whole bunch of them in my chapter on collaborative leadership. Um, then they would either hire or not. They could hire from within or they could hire externally. Uh, they could engage a recruiter to find that specific kind of leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's pretty straightforward. I, I guess it's it's a it's a matter of really alignment and agreement on the culture that you want to have, and then you find the person to fit it. Um, we did this at, at one of the companies I worked with in Northern Ohio. Uh, where uh, the the marketing guy left, and we enter, you know, we actually developed a matrix of attributes of collaborative leadership that we wanted to see in the candidates that came in. And when the candidates interviewed, we checked off, gave ratings, um, and then had conversation afterwards. It took us a while, but we did find the right guy. Um, so, well, if the if a sudden uh, large group of leadership leaves, that might indicate that the existing culture needs to be improved. And that certainly gives a great opportunity to improve the culture. Yeah, and I think it's, it's also an opportunity for whatever senior leadership is left um, or the human resources function to actually do some discovery uh, among the workforce. Uh, to do some assessment, uh, cultural assessment as to what they want. Um, there's a great colleague of mine uh, at the University of Illinois in Chicago, uh, Robert Cook, who's done some fabulous work on culture types. Uh, he's got a statistical uh, survey, the cultural assessment tool, um, which he's used for 40 years and has a sample of about 5 million people all around the world, all different types of companies. And what he found was that there were three different types of culture. There was a passive defensive culture, kind of like a, you know, often banks are this way or transportation companies, uh, old companies that have been around for you know, 100, 150 years. Uh, and those, those cultures are, um, you know, people are really on their guard. They're protective. Um, there's a second culture, aggressive defensive culture, which is more like a marketing operation. Um, 
uh, go get them. Uh, Sometimes, you know, think of the stock exchange um, and uh, investment companies uh, where it's more individualistic and people are, well, will steal from each other in order to be able to get their, their bonuses based upon performance. Um, but uh, then there's the constructive collaborative culture, which is more like we've been talking about here in terms of being people-centric and socially oriented. Um, and when he uh, asked them what type of culture they were in and what type of culture they wanted to be in, 95% of them were either in the first two, passive defensive or aggressive defensive. 98% wanted to have a collaborative constructive culture. So there's a huge gap. So that's why I'm saying, you know, ask the workforce, let's get them engaged in the process um, of what type of culture they want to have. And there are tools available to make to do those assessments. Thank you so much to Tony for that submission. Next we move on to Miranda M. Miranda asks a hypothetical. Two companies from two different countries merged to create a global entity. How can management navigate the challenges of cultural integration, aligning values and norms, and fostering a cohesive and inclusive organizational culture that embraces the strengths of both companies? Uh, excellent, excellent question. Um, and Miranda, thank you for that. I would say that um, ownership, again, so I'm going to, this is going to sound like I'm beating the same old drum because it is very similar. These next two situations are very similar in process. Uh, ownership is the key to, to this navigation. I have worked with companies that have merged uh, who did not do the cultural integration work that Miranda is so rightfully uh, suggesting that it be done. Uh, they said, let's just get to the bottom line. We're going to have to get rid of people, you know, where they're redundant functions and all that kind of thing. And what it does, the minute a merger is announced, even before the merger is announced, people freeze. They stop doing whatever they were doing. They don't take risks, you know, because of the fear of losing their jobs, which is right. I mean, they look around at the companies that have been that have merged. So you have to make a shift. Uh, and I'm thinking of two global functions that I help uh, integrate within a global company. And uh, when we walked into the room, one group was on one side of the aisle and the other group was on the other side of the aisle and they were all trading glances at each other because they were wondering who was going to be axed you know, when the integration actually happened. And um, the two leaders got up on the stage. I had worked with them beforehand and they, they basically came out and said, we don't know who's gonna be picked between the two of us, but whoever it is, we, were, we are gonna shake hands and pat the other on the back and help them in whatever way we can. It turned out that my sponsor was the one who uh, won the job, but we formed, those 80 people into teams that had both companies uh, represented and uh, gave them very specific tasks for about seven teams and gave them very specific tasks as to helping to define what the new culture of the organization was going to be. 
Um, and they came back and presented their results and they were then, you know, we had social interaction and all of that, but that teamwork uh, and the uh, magnanimity of the leadership um, gave them permission to really explore what they really wanted to have in the organization. Again, ownership is the key to this. Um, so I think the leadership team in this case, in Miranda's case, could create a, you know, a, a change team that would have workforce representation on it. That's the collaboration paradigm. Um, and they would be responsible for the change. That change team would then create tiger teams, if you will, uh, that would, um, all of these teams would go through uh, a process I, I have developed over the years called the collaborative team governance process, which is all about building trust and getting clear on what, how these teams are going to work with each other. We've, you know, at, at Pratt, we did this in the MEM executive challenge and it made a huge difference in how the teams functioned. Um, so uh, the teams, this tiger teams then do discovery, uh, the cultures of, the, of, of both companies. They can use the cultural assessment tool um, that I just described from Robert Cook. Um, they can uh, then base those results, agree on, you know, uh, what level of, you know, what type of culture they want to have. And I think at that point, they uh, they would then have a specific action plan. Uh, and so they're going into implementation mode. But there has to be, again, that commitment to really building a high degree of ownership of both companies represented in the change process and then on each of the Tiger teams as it rolls out. Um, because the principle here of ownership is that people take care of what they own. They don't wash rented cars. And the reason there's resistance to change, which comes up in the next one, is because there is a lack of ownership. Uh, and that absolutely happens in a merger because, you know, there's always the stronger partner and the weaker partner in people's perception. Even though they, they appear to be equal, they're not. They're coming together for a reason. Usually that's for comp competitive reasons or financial reasons or both. Um, so it's really important that um, that we dissipate that perception that there's some people are better than other people by really getting together and work the issue together around what type of future they want to have. In the case of Miranda's question, um, the two companies are from different countries. And I know that you have a lot of experience in working internationally. Uh, and you mentioned the Tiger teams which would be a third party. Would that third party be from like, since they're working uh, across borders, like what stance would the Tiger team come from in response in regards to uh, the nationality? Those Tiger teams are from are from the workforce. They're not, it's not a third party. Oh. Uh, it, there is actually, you know, if we had, you know, a thousand people or 5,000 people um, and we had, you know, 10 different functions or seven, usually seven different functions, um, then the Tiger teams in, let's say, in the marketing function would be from both countries, both cultures, uh, working on a specific issue around marketing. 
Then there would be another one in finance. There'd be another one in IT. Uh, but the whole point is cross-cultural integration along with cross-functional integration, along with you know a cultural shift by building ownership of what that new culture is going to be. Mm. Um, thank you, Miranda, for the wonderful question. And last but not least, we have a submission from Evan O. Evan asks, a manufacturing company is implementing a new enterprise resource planning system, ERP system, which requires significant changes to processes and workflows. However, employees exhibit resistance in the new system due to concerns about job security and unfamiliarity with the technology. How can the company address the resistance, provide training and support, and communicate the benefits and long-term goals of the ERP system to gain buy-in and facilitate a smooth transition? Um, excellent. Another excellent question. Thank you, Evan. Um, this is, uh, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've run into this. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, SAP was coming into this company. I, I won't use their name. Uh, SAP was coming into this company to do just this, to install an ERP system. Everybody was up in arms. They've gotten quite used to their existing technology. Um, and so there was a significant amount of resistance, people not coming to the, to the training sessions, people not even coming to the informational sessions. No one really wanted to do it because um, SAP has a reputation um, as um, you know, costing more money and taking more time and displacing a lot of people in the process. But that's not just SAP. That's any of the any of the ERP companies, um, and what they're missing because they'll come in and they'll say, "Let's do, let's do, um, you know, let's do training, let's do job redefinition, let's do, uh, you know, system installation," um, and so they will think they think that that process oriented approach is what is was how they're going to implement the change and that it will be successful. Not so because you know any organizational change is a cultural change process. If you don't pay attention to the culture uh, and to the people, uh, the change process, I don't care how hard you work at it is not going to work. Uh, I, I was with one subcontracting company working with the US Air Force. Um, largest ERP uh, operation in the in the in history, one point five billion dollars, and they were going to bring in Oracle, and um, they had a four star general who was driving the process, and I said, "You got to have an ownership strategy. If you don't, this thing's going to go belly up." Well, we were able to get a little bit of that um, ownership, but what happened was that the process eventually went belly up. Because for 28 years, these people in Dayton, Ohio, had been working together. They knew their the families interact with each other, went to school together. They grew up together, and they had they had a very strong social interactive network in there in in this organization. It was they were all in one building, and they built this kind of Rube Goldberg machine that worked. Except they couldn't get a roll of toilet paper to Afghanistan. Um, 
so the whole thing went belly up after about a year and a half, and it took 10 years for them to reissue the RFP. Now, had they instituted an ownership process where those people in that technology center actually participated in the creation of the process, um, uh, it would have gone very, very differently. Um, so <clears throat> all that is to say, the same process, having a change leadership team that is committed to building ownership of the change, including the workforce, having them sit at the table in an equal representation with management, that workforce, the representation would be representative of the rest of the organization. Um, and they they charge sub-teams and they go out and figure out what are the components of it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the same basic kind of flow once senior leadership makes a commitment uh, to really engaging the workforce in a meaningful way, not just making presentations, not just all hands meetings, but actually engaging them in the nitty gritty of decision making and implementation. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like a situation they could have easily avoided, but I'm I'm glad they, with your guys' help, eventually got to a good position. Now, thank you, Evan, for that question. That's all the user submissions we've had this time. And thank you, thank you to the audience for providing these really exceptional scenarios. And thank you again to Dr. Marshall for providing advice on how to navigate through them. Absolutely. And if anyone wants a copy of my book, the, the links will be in the, in the show notes. Um, and uh, also, if you wish to contact me directly or if you have questions, um, I would thoroughly enjoy um, talking with you and will respond very quickly. I'll be providing all the details on Leadership's Fourth Evolution and your contact info in the description of this episode. And I just want to thank you again for uh, all that you've done for this show. Again, last time we, our first episode was in October. Since then, so many wonderful people have listened to this show. We've gotten so many wonderful guests and episodes out, and the whole community has grown a lot. And it couldn't have been started without your help. So thank you so much. Well, I think what you're doing, John, is a, is a wonderful thing. Um, I think the framing effect is your your generation is the, are the future leaders, and those of us who are older, uh, anything we can do, to anything I can do to help you all, uh, I will do. This is part of my mission now. So thank you for the privilege of and the honor of spending time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to the audience members who submitted their own experiences and scenarios in today's episode. If you have questions that you would like to be answered by an expert in a future episode, please make sure to email theframingeffectpc at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Please follow our Instagram at theframingeffectpc and stay curious.